Hi, this is Carolyn Neil Lachlan, your hostess with the mostest of From Paper to People podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 135, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. You'll find Derek on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM, and you'll find me on Twitter at C McBrien if you'd like to reach out to us. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's going on in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, Well, I've been uh, exceptionally busy at work this week, Mm -hmm. and I haven't really had a lot of time to take in a lot of pop culture aside from watching Star Trek II, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Um, Really, the only thing that I've had a chance to do is listen to music. And normally I just listen to the radio when I'm working or a streaming service or whatever. Mm -hmm. I like 80s music. I like classic rock. I like 90s music. Um, And so I just, you know, pick the streams. But uh, earlier this week, I don't know why, but it just, I decided I'm going to go sort of back through my music library and, and listen to some bands I haven't listened to in a while that maybe don't come up on the streaming services as frequently. And one of the bands that that caught my eye was Nine Inch Nails, which followed up on our podcast from last week about cover songs. Mm-hmm. One of my one of the ones on my list was Closer, originally by Nine Inch Nails, was covered by Johnny Cash. And so I sort of had Nine Inch Nails on the brain. So this week I had a chance to go back and listen to a couple of the earlier albums, Pretty Hate Machine from 1989 and The Downward Spiral from 1994, which are my two favorite Nine Inch Nails albums. And uh, it was it was like a walk down memory memory lane as as good music often does uh it triggers a memory sensation and it's like oh well what does this make you think of when did when when this song was big and you heard it every day on the radio what were you doing in your life and so those two albums were both uh at times in my life that were very uh pleasant uh you know it was uh my first year of high school my second year of university so you know uh really good times and uh, so it was it was in a week where I had a lot of work and a lot of difficult challenges and tight deadlines, to have this uh, these positive memories sort of flooding back in just from listening to the to this music uh, was a real pick me up this week. So uh, I didn't really have a chance to watch anything on TV. Didn't really have a chance to to watch any movies. But uh, the music of Nine Inch Nails got me through this week, and uh, I, I I encourage people who are fans of the band if you haven't listened to them in a while. Go back and give them a good listen. Nice. I like that one. My wife and I needed a new show to watch, like to binge watch. So we started watching Orange is the New Black. Have you ever seen that? I have not. My wife watched all the episodes and recommended it, but I just, I never got around to it. So it's just, we wanted to find something new. I really like it. It's really, really good. You know, the writing is just top notch. The performances are great. The casting is just impeccable. It is something else. I really enjoy it. Now we're only about five or six episodes into season one. So we're just kind of really got started, but I, so far I've really enjoyed it. So you'll be very proud. It's something that I'm watching that t- takes place after 1989. That's really something for me. There you go. Yeah. Before we get started with our movie review, uh, it's time, of course, for... Here's your dad joke of the week. Okay, here it is. Derek, how many ears 
does Spock have? Two. Three. The left ear, the right ear, and the final frontier. Oh, gosh. Jeez. Oh, man. Left, right, left. Black guys, help the white guys. <laughs> Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna. Death before disco. disco. Yeah. Should have called him the dork. I'm better than you. I can do whatever I want. It's like going into Wisconsin. You just broke my force field. Yeah, well, I got the sh- kicked out of me in Wisconsin once. Forget it. Yeah, you win. Son of So one of my favorite things about doing this podcast, besides getting together and talking with you every week, of course, my friend, and that goes without saying, but one of my favorite things is being able to go back and watch movies from my youth that I grew up just loving. And Gen X classics are just way better than today's movies. That is a hill I am willing to die on to, as you know. I love the movies from Generation X, and being able to go back and watch some of these movies, one's that some of them I haven't seen in 20, 30 years. And also the other thing is the fact that I I mentioned before I have young sons. So it just makes it all the better like because it allows me to introduce these classic movies to them. But anyway, this week it was my turn to nominate a movie and you and Yancey have made me watch a lot of newer and dare I say crappy science fiction movies over the years doing this podcast. So I decided to have us go back and rewatch a classic from 1982 science fiction movie, and it's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, I'd like to set this up a little bit before I turn it over to you. It goes without saying, Derek, that I'm old, okay? I know, but when I was a kid, about seven or eight years old, uh, so it would have been back in like 77, 78, every day I would come home from school, and since I'm Canadian, I would go out and play road hockey with my friends, and then at five o'clock, Every day, I would come into the house, go into the basement, and I would watch Star Trek from 5 to 6 o'clock, and then go have dinner. Now, obviously, I'm talking about the original Star Trek series with Shatner and Nimoy and Divorce Kelly. Uh, the original series ran from 66 to 69, so it was before my time. But the series experienced a rebirth in the mid to late 70s because it ran in syndication. And it became more popular during the mid 70s than it was when it first ran. I mean, the the original series only lasted three seasons and got canceled. But like I say, the series got really popular in the 70s on syndication. There was a whole series of toys that came out at that time by Mego. Instead of the little, you know, four inch Star Wars figures that came out in 78, the Star Trek Mego figures, they were kind of more like Barbie dolls. They weren't quite as big as Barbie, but they were more like them in terms of how they looked. Like they had cloth shirts and pants and they had these little baby blue accessories like uh, the phasers and the belts. And there was uh, a line of toys that were supposed to look like props from the show. And the thing was, they didn't really look like them, to be honest. I remember being about eight years old and saving all my money. Just I saved all my money like crazy so that I could get enough money to buy communicators. And they were basically just walkie-talkies with stickers on them. But it didn't matter. I loved those things. But anyway, this is all this whole story. It's just my way of saying that Star Trek was a huge part of my youth. And then in 1979, a lot of it because of the, the sort of the newfound popularity of the old TV show, they came up with Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I never saw it in theaters. I remember it, it, it came out on the movie channel. A little bit after and I was so excited to watch it even though I'd heard nothing but bad things about it but anyway I finally watched it on the movie channel 
and I couldn't even make my way through it. And so to this day, I've never even seen the whole film. I don't remember much about the movie, except that I just turned it off and hated it. So then 1982 rolls around and they announce a sequel. And needless to say, my expectations, and I think the expectations of pretty much everyone at the time were, were pretty low, to say the least. But then something happened. It turned out that the sequel was actually good. And not just that it was good, it was really good, I think. And I saw, I saw this movie, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, in the movie theater. And I absolutely loved it. And I'm going to get into the reasons why I love it in this episode. But in a nutshell, this movie made me remember why I loved Star Trek so much. And so as a result, this movie will always have a very special place in my heart. So anyway, that's my story that I just wanted to put out there to get us started. Derek, um, can you share your experience with this movie before we get into the full out review? Yes, absolutely. Uh, let me sort of uh, unpack a couple of things that you mentioned <clears throat> or, or comment on a couple. Yeah, of I gave things. a lot there. So uh, you talked about Star Trek toys. There yes. <laughs> is a Netflix series called The Toys That Made Us. Yes. And there is an episode about Star Trek toys that speaks to the, the specific things that you just talked about along with all the other stuff. And a lot of the background was that when um, Star Trek became popular and there was no merchandise, they basically went out to companies and went, what do you have that we can slap Star Trek logos onto? Uh, which is why some of the toys look nothing like anything in the show. But uh, if you are a super duper Star Trek fan and uh, and and the merchandise related to the program is something you want to learn more about, check it out on Netflix. The Toys That Made Us. It's a great series, but there is a specific episode about Star Trek toys. Uh, secondly, you said uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, yeah. In uh, 1979, was it? Mm -hmm. when yes, it came out? that's correct. So a couple of things about that. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, the Star Trek original series was being shown in syndication, which uh, made it available to audiences who had never seen it before. It became very popular. Uh, the fact that Star Wars was released in 1977 and was a phenomenon certainly encouraged people to put out uh, science fiction products in any way, shape or form. So I think the combination of those two things really are what led to the Star Trek movie. I got to think the Star Wars thing more than the, the syndication, simply the Paramount went – uh, we don't have Star Wars. What do we got? You got Star Trek. Think we make some money off of that? Yeah, sure. Let's turn it into a movie. Done. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good and point. Yeah. I remember reading that the reason they called it Star Trek The Motion Picture is they only ever intended to make one of them. That's why they didn't call it Star Trek One or Star Trek whatever. Uh, it was the motion picture because it was supposed to be the only supplement to the TV show. You got the TV show and then you've got... The motion picture. And then the fact that there was an opportunity to make more money by making sequels, all the ones after that had numbers. So interesting. Uh, my personal experience with this, I first saw this movie, I would have been, it came out in 82? 82, yeah. So I would have been uh, uh, eight, eight, eight or nine years old around then. And I actually saw it in the drive-in. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and it was one of those ones where you go to the drive-in and they show two movies in a row. And this was the second movie, so I actually fell asleep before the end. Oh no! And the second I was movie, really little. The second movie at the drive-in for anybody that has never been to a drive-in before, um, and there's some out there. Uh, the second movie was always the bigger movie of the yes. two. They always had like yeah. the intro was like a kind of some unrelated film, and then the big movie or something was a little older. I want yeah. to say it was a comedy of some sort. Uh, honestly, I don't remember. I do have vivid memories of the experience of being at the drive-in for it. 
but I don't remember what the first feature was. But uh, And then in subsequent years, I saw it on video and I saw it on TV and I've since bought the DVD. And, and yeah, I, I think Star Trek 2 is great. Arguably one of the very best sequels ever made. And uh, we'll, we'll go into some detail about why that is. So, uh, Chris, I want to uh, yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about Star Trek 2. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, but before uh, we jump into that. Yes. Off air last week after we finished our recording and you said, I want you to watch Star Trek 2. I said to you, well, you know, as we are both aware, the reason that it's called the Wrath of Khan is because the character Khan was first introduced in the original series in uh, an episode called Space Seed, I believe. Yep, it was called Space Seed. Yes. And so the part of what makes the sequel such a great sequel is it's actually a sequel to an episode from the TV series. So it builds on that. And whether you're a super fan and have seen the episode or whether you have not, it works either way. But you and I had both said, hey, uh, Star Trek episodes are available on streaming services. Why don't we watch the old episode where they introduce Khan before we watch this movie? And we both sort of said, yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. So I know that's what I did in my household. Did you have a chance to do that in your house? Yes. So I'm glad you mentioned that before we get into this movie. Perfect. <clears throat> because as you mentioned, when I nominated this at the end of our last episode, um, it was, and I think it was after we stopped recording. Yeah. You and I, after, yeah, you yeah. and I were talking and said, okay, we got to go back and watch Space Seed, right? Um, yeah. And so I, I obviously planned to do the same thing. That was a great idea on your part. Now, as I mentioned, I loved the original series when I was a young kid from when I was like seven to eight years old. I watched the show and reruns. I just loved it. So I thought this would be actually a good opportunity to let my two young sons watch the show with me and sure. see if they might like it as well. So this week, just this week, the three of us, me and my two sons, we got together in the basement and we put on Netflix and we watched the episode from the original series with Khan. Now, as an aside, I do want to mention this. When Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan came out, I didn't realize that it was based on an old episode of the TV show, even though, as I mentioned, I watched it every day after school. I do not remember ever seeing the con episode, or if I, if I did, I, I certainly don't remember it, or I didn't remember it in 1982 when this movie came out. Yeah, I, neither did I. I, I think, had no, no, yeah. knowledge, no foreknowledge as a youngster that that's, that's where this character had to first appear. I think I have memories of hearing people saying that it was based on an episode of the TV show, but I didn't, don't sort of explicitly remember the episode when I initially saw this movie. So a couple of observations that I have on the old show, because let me tell you, talk about nostalgia. Oh my goodness, watching that old episode, it just took me back. But I want to make a couple of observations on the, on that episode. So first of all, Khan himself, he's really brown. So he's supposed to be from India in this episode. Yeah, I think and they say he's like Persian or something. I know, I think he was from India, if, if, I'm, oh, yeah? if I'm mistaken. And Somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. and, and he, remember he had, he had uh, taken over like a quarter of the world's population and was leading it. Kind of like yeah. uh, he was like like the Roman like Napoleon Empire, or yeah, Napoleon, exactly. Yeah. And the and the thing is, so he's supposed to be from India, and he was really brown. And Ricardo Montalban is Mexican, so I just figured like you could tell they put a lot of dark makeup on him because uh, his complexion is it's quite dark in the episode. So that was yeah. one takeaway that I had. The second thing that kind of struck me is the female character who's the historian. And she was aware of all of human history from the 1990s is, of course, named MacGyver's. 
Yeah, I, saw, I laughed at that too. <laughs> Which I thought, Star Trek could always see into the future, couldn't they? I thought that yep. was interesting. And then the other thing that really struck me was the scene where Kirk and Khan fight each other. They, the the producers or whatever, when they shot it, they don't even try to cover the fact that it's two stuntmen. You can, <laughs> yeah, you can see their that faces. Yeah. You can see their faces and everything during the scene. And I yeah. think this happened a lot in the old show, if I remember correctly, because a lot of it was so flooding back to me. Now, um, a couple notes. My boys actually both really enjoyed the old TV show. They really? both, they okay, both really liked it, which surprised me. Now, I mean, granted, we only watched one episode, but they liked it. And they've actually said, oh, Daddy, we want to watch more. Now, my older son, who's 10, I figured he would like it. He likes all the old movies and TV shows that I've shown him. But my younger son, he's usually a different story. You know, and I've, I've never mentioned this on the podcast before, but my younger son, who's seven years old, he has autism. So he generally won't sit still and watch any movie or any TV show that's not animated. But you know what? He really, he actually liked this, this episode. He liked the show. And he, he's asked me every day since, Daddy, can we watch another Star Trek? And I don't know. It's, it's kind of surprising to me. Because one thing I will say about the old show, having gone back and watched it, it's, I mean, I mean this in, in, in a nice way, I guess, but it's kind of boring. You know, when you compare it to what's available for kids to watch today, between all the CGI and the nonstop action, and I think, hell, the original Star Trek TV show is kind of lame by today's standards, or so you might think. So I was quite happy when it turned out that both my kids liked it. Well, I mean, uh, I, I can agree with what you're saying. Uh, going back to watch some of those old episodes, I definitely feel that you're right. There's certainly a uh, a boring point of view sort of thing based on if you're looking at it with today's lens. But one of the things that I always found Star Trek that I liked about like, – because I wasn't a huge fan of the original series until I was much older, until after Next Gen came out and I went back after that and watched the original series in its entirety, was that um, – you got to remember the time in which the show was made, right? It was in the late 60s, which was a big time of change, social change. And the show did a really good job, as good science fiction often does, is it it gives you a moral dilemma and then presents a solution. But it does it in the guise of aliens and faraway places and robots instead of saying – this is what's happening in America today and this is an issue we need to be aware of and address and, and push for change, it, they can say this happens on the Starship Enterprise in the future in some faraway galaxy and these aliens have this problem and look, this is a way to solve the problem. And science, good science fiction is often a metaphor for some other point of view or issue that the author is trying to, to shine a spotlight on in a way – that's enter often entertaining and that they can do it without fear of reprisal to say, well, this is really about this political person or this agenda that's happening now or this bill or this law or this whatever. And I found that with uh, with the original series of Star Trek, uh, I, I believe Roddenberry wrote or had a, a hand in writing many of the episodes. He really had uh, a good team working with him where they um, – they really had their sort of finger on the pulse of what was happening. And there's a lot of very interesting and important social issues that are presented in Star Trek, but they're presented in a way that that is still appealing to even an audience today. And yeah, some of those topics may seem boring now, but you and I can watch it and sort of go, man, I can see how this really would have, you know, packed a punch in the 60s when this was like actually happening 
So. Oh yeah, and even when you think about certain episodes, like where Kirk and Uhura had an on-screen kiss. And things like that. It was like all groundbreaking. The show was something else. Okay, but anyway, on to the movie itself. Star Trek II, yes, The Rathacon. Yes. So, 15 years has passed since the TV show episode and then when this movie came out. And the first thing that I noticed as I'm watching the movie was Shatner's hair. Yeah. Because here in the movie, he's got more of like a, a curly perm thing going yes. on. He's got For like the, T, the TJ Hooker hair. The TJ Hooker. Yeah, yeah you know. But anyway, so it's in the 23rd century. So they mentioned that. And... Another thing that really struck me is they dress differently than in the TV series. Rather than the red shirts and the blue shirts and the yellow shirts, all with the black pants, they've all got the red uniforms with, like, the pleated collars on them. Yeah. Which was interesting. Anyway, so the movie opens up with Kirstie Alley in the captain's chair, her first movie role, right? And then everything goes wrong, and the bridge gets blasted, and everyone dies, including Spock. And it turns out to be a test. And Kirk comes aboard, and he's addressed as... Admiral Kirk. So he's obviously got a promotion from Captain. And then they talk about the test and how he apparently took it three times and had a unique solution. But anyway, so it's it's Kirk's birthday. And I thought it was interesting. Bones brings him a bottle of Romulan ale. It's apparently illegal. Yeah. You know, a highly but sought after. No purposes only. Yeah, let's say it's like a, the Cuban cigars of the yeah. future or something. But I thought it was an interesting scene, and I don't think I ever picked up on this when I was a kid. But in Kirk's chamber, there's all these old guns and relics everywhere. There's like an old computer and stuff. And for me, that scene meant it was almost symbolic of the fact that Kirk himself is now kind of a relic. Yeah. You know, he's he's an admiral. He's no longer captain in a ship. And, and Bones even tells him, you know, you need to go back. You need to go back and lead a ship again. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You know? So, yeah. anyway, I thought that scene was really... I, I never would have picked up on that. And like I say, it's been probably 20 or 30 years since I saw this movie. So, um, so my first impression... Uh, you know, those are the scenes that are kind of open the film. And my first impression was was like... I was, I was digging it. Like, I mean, it's been a long time since I watched it. But I was like, oh, man, this movie's pretty good. It was, it was very nostalgic for me. So, my, my impression is, so far, it's holding up well. And I'm enjoying it. First impressions for you. Yeah, I mean, I've seen... Star Trek two in its entirety or most of it, probably I think 20 between 20 and 30 times is probably a reasonable estimate. It's one of those ones where if it's on TV and I catch it halfway through, I finish watching it or, Hey, I got 20 minutes to kill. What's coming up. Hey, I'll watch the first part of Star Trek two. So uh, I've never I've seen, seen it on TV. I wish I oh, would. I wish I'd run into it. Oh, I wish. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I really like it. The, the Kobayashi Maru test has become a big part of Star Trek lore in the new rebooted Star Trek franchise. They they reference this particular test again. They actually show Kirk taking the test as a young man when he cheats. Um, there was a, a Star Trek novel. So they wrote hundreds of Star Trek novels uh, that were licensed out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There was actually a novel called The Kobayashi Maru, and it's um, Scotty, Chekhov, Sulu, and I think Mr. Spock are like – going somewhere on a long journey and along the way they each tell their story of how they tried to defeat the Kobayashi Maru test so it's basically a story told in four parts and it was fascinating it was so interesting like I didn't read a lot of the Star Trek fiction it wasn't really my thing but just the concept of this no win test and the, the idea of how different people approach the problem differently was was a fascinating topic to me and uh, so whenever I watch this movie it just reminds me of this whole idea of 
the no win scenario. And then he even says, he goes, you know, the whole point of the test was it's a no win scenario and every captain should, should have to face that. Did you not consider that? And she even says, no, I hadn't considered that. And he's like, well, don't you feel that how you handle death is as important as how you handle life? And she's like, well, no, as I said, I, I had never thought of that. So, I mean, it, it, it's an important uh, an important lesson, and I think that it's it's uh, a big part of the movie, right? The whole idea of uh, every everyone has an ending. There's everyone will eventually die, and how do you face that scenario? So it was a good way to set up the movie with a test of how you handle death, and then there's this movie that really deals with the death of these characters, and the death of Kirk's career, and the death of his nemesis, and potentially the death of all of them. Um, so yeah, no, the 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 story is. Is really told well. It's really set up well. It is. And it's funny you mentioned death because the flip side of that is obviously life. And it's a big part of this movie as well because there's that spaceship where the, the scientists are building uh, the Genesis. Yeah. And which is a module that generates new life on a lifeless planet. And interestingly enough, the this movie, its working title was like Star Trek II um, Genesis or the Genesis Project. And then I think they changed it to Star Trek II, The Undiscovered Country, which they ended up using on another sequel. Yeah, and Shakespeare quote they used in and part I'm, six. Yeah, I'm really glad that they kind of t- took a step back and went, wait, hold on a second here. The Genesis is just, as far as I'm concerned, that's a subplot. Absolutely. That's a subplot. What's really going on here is Khan against yep. Kirk. That's the key. And so when they took that tack... And then it was all about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I think that's where they really hit it, you know. But um, but speaking about the Genesis, um, the young guy that, that plays David, that plays, you know, as we learn who he is, mm-hmm. uh, it's Merrick, Merritt Buttrick was the actor actor's name. Sure. I, don't, I don't know if you ever remembered him. He was in Zapped and he was in Square Pegs. He was in Zapped? Oh, yeah. With I, Scott Bale? Yes, yes. He was, he was like the, the kind of like valley guy kind of guy with the like he had like these things on his hair and he was doing a poem in class and um and he I was don't in remember square... the movie that well i just remember certain sequences of yeah the movie. and he was in square pegs he was a very unique actor i recognized him right away and i think he probably would have gone on to have a much sort of longer acting career he actually died of aids in 1989 but really? yeah yeah in this movie though he's he's opens up he's talking to dr marcus and you realize right from the get-go that she's his mom and then she mentions how she, you know, she kind of goes around it and you realize she used to date Kirk. And it's just kind of alluded to in the early scenes. Yeah. You know, but um, I, probably no surprise. I mean, if, if you think about the early TV episodes, Kirk Kirk got around a little bit with Don't the ladies. You know, I mean, he dated women. There was such a thing aliens. herpes. Kirk yeah. has it. <laughs> he, he dated anything that moved, really. I mean, uh, but anyway, so really cool opening scene they go into is when Chekhov and Terrell, who's Paul Winfield from The Terminator. That was another mm-hmm. good actor. I liked him, too. Uh, but when they go and explore the barren planet, because they detect there's some, like, minor life forms, maybe, and they find the old ship, and then... Chekhov sees it's the USS Botany Bay. And it was really cool because my sons, we had just watched the episode. They're like, Botany Bay, Dad, it's the Botany Bay. I didn't I didn't tell them anything. Right, right. So right. they were like, oh my God, Dad, it's the Botany Bay. And so I thought that was really cool. And then I love how the people come into the ship and the leader is wearing like a kafir and a mask and he removes them slowly. It's just such a great reveal, you know? Yeah. And then... The thing that was interesting was Chekhov and Khan recognize each other, even though Chekhov wasn't on the TV show yet. Yeah, I was going to say. When that I, episode came up. Yeah. So I had some nitpicks. And, and so I'm going to bring this up now then. So I there there was a series of books, 
like paperback books that were released called the nitpickers guide to star Trek. Okay. And it was a super fan in like the early nineties who put out a series of books. He put out a next generation, the original series, the star Trek films. And he went through episode by episode and he pointed out every continuity error, every flaw, every (laughs) filming mistake, editing error. Some of them were like, incredibly minor other ones were pretty big loopholes that you once you read it you're like well i'm never going to be able to unsee that part of it and um so i i I, try as i might i know i have the book somewhere i can't find them so now whenever i watch movies i'm like oh i'm 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 gonna nitpick that's that's where i always picked up that term nitpick but the two nitpicks i have for this movie is the one you just mentioned so in this movie khan says i never forget a face mr chekhov but as you mentioned um uh, Walter Koenig, uh, the actor who plays Chekhov, did not appear in the actual Space Seed episode. No, I don't. However, th- I don't even think he was cast in the show at that point. No, no, no. However, he was not in the early episodes of the show, but I believe he was like a, a, a regular recurring player in the second and third episode, second and third seasons. And I think Space Seed was from season three, if I remember correctly. So he no, wasn't it's from season one. It's was from, it from it's, season one. It's season one, episode twenty-two. Oh, okay. I thought so, it was season two. So, so yeah, Chekhov wasn't even around at that point. So that's that my wife and I said that we're like, yeah. well, if Chekhov is a part of the crew, maybe it's just, you know, his day off. Like they can't possibly be expected right. to work seven days a week. So just because he wasn't in the episode doesn't mean he wasn't on the ship or maybe in the lunchroom when everybody came in and, hey, we picked up these guys and, hey, what, you know, like a little bit of social. But yeah, the actor himself, the character himself did not appear on screen in the, in the actual right. episode. So that was a big thing. The other one was about Botany Bay. In the episode, Space Seed, they originally find the ship, derelict ship, this, the Botany Bay, where all the people are in hibernation. And the con wakes up and he comes on the Enterprise and he reads all the technical manuals so he knows how to take over the ship, rah, rah, rah. Mm-hmm. Right. And then eventually Khan goes back to the Botany Bay, wakes up all his people and brings them onto the Enterprise. And then they make a point in this in that episode of saying – they jettison the botany bay away from the the tractor beam because they don't have any need for this. They're going to just steal the Enterprise. So in this movie, when they're like, oh, my God, it's the botany bay. Oh, right. What did they do at the end of Spacey? Did they go back in space, find, find it? Ship? <laughs> okay, Con, here you go. Here's your old ship again. And hey, maybe they did. Maybe there was something on the ship like – the whole idea of the, the original ship was they were going to go and find some new place. Maybe there was like supplies to set up a new colony. I don't know. And if there was, then makes sense to go back and get the ship. But it was again, it wasn't something shown or talked about on screen. And I'd never picked up on that before. But as soon as my wife and I were watching it, she turns to me, she goes, why would those things say SS Botany Bay if they got rid of the ship? And I was like, You're, excellent yeah. point, honey. Maybe maybe it's one of those things that like the, the science fiction nerds will explain. Like the Botany Bay just kind of, you know, they, they jettisoned it, but they got sucked into the gravity of the, the planet right there and landed. And then they put them down there or something. Yeah. Anyway, who knows? But I'm not going to overthink it. Exactly. I just, exactly. I wanted to point them out. Those were my two nitpicks. Though. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just want to go back to the reveal for a minute because when Khan comes in and does that reveal and you see him for the first time, it's just such a great scene. But a couple of things came to my mind when he did that. So the first thing was Kirk isn't the only one with a new hairdo because Khan's got all this like long gray hair, you know, and, he, and the other thing is he's a lot whiter than he was on the TV show. Like I mentioned, the makeup department had him pretty dark in that episode of the TV show, but here he looks kind of like a white guy. Yeah, exactly. Well, so speaking of white guys, 
In the original episode, they described the crew of the Botany Bay as genetically enhanced super super soldiers, for lack of a better term, who ended up um, taking over the various countries around the world. But they described them as basically being of uh, all sorts of mixed ethnicity, uh, which you would expect. Like, you know, the person who's from Asia is going to look different than the person who's from Scandinavia is going to look different than the person from Africa. And if they're all over the world, that would make total sense. And in the TV episode, they make a point of saying that, even though there doesn't look like there's a lot of multiculturalism going on. True. But in this movie, yeah. there's even less. It's like mm-hmm. all whitey, All white guys, like, yeah. And only Khan and that other one guy, the, the blonde guy, they're the only two that speak. Because, again, if the actors say anything on screen, they got to get paid more. Right. So <laughs> they got to make more than scale. Like, yeah. You notice nobody else on Khan's crew says anything? Not a single word. Maybe it was a budget thing. I don't know. I'm sure it was. But it was just – it's sort of – once she pointed – it's one of those things like once someone points it out, you can't unsee it. And so she yeah. brought it up purely in the movie yeah. and I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, I like so, that. Sorry, I'm ruining that for for everybody from now on when they watch Star Trek. No, Tuesday. that's a good point. I like that. So in, right after that scene, Khan gets the, the scorpion things and he gets the little babies. And he mentions that they killed 20 of his people, including his wife. So we have to assume at this point that he's referring to MacGyver's. I would you assume know, so, yeah. Because she was banished to join him on the planet or she had to face a court martial for helping him, if you remember. And... Yeah. Interestingly enough, the actress that played MacGyver's on the TV episode was Madeline Rue, and she suffered from MS around the time that they started shooting this movie. So she was confined to a wheelchair. And so she didn't do the movie. Now, I'm not sure if they just didn't write her into the script or like, I'm not sure exactly why, because she was still acting at the time. She appeared in a bunch of TV shows around then. Like she did Quincy and different strokes. And she even did fantasy Island of all things with Ricardo. With Ricardo yeah. But she didn't get cast in this movie. So, um, they just chalked it up to the scorpion things, killing her. But anyway, um, Kirk goes back to the enterprise. Another scene, which I thought was just really cool because it was so cool for him to go back and, and see the ship. And and the thing for me was, and I made a note of it, was you just realize how iconic that the ship is. Yeah. It, it was always something I thought was just amazing when I was a kid. I always wanted a model of it. And, and when I was a kid, I never had one. I mean, I once had a model set that I built that was a replica of the bridge. Okay. Uh, and but and I once had this little plastic enterprise that was attached to a, a metal rod and it would spin around and around with a controller, but I never had like a freestanding model that I could like fly around and pretend to explore my backyard <laughs> and stuff, you know. Um but anyway, so Kirk comes aboard the Enterprise, really cool scene, I thought. Um the one thing I, I, I thought was interesting was there's like a greeting party there. That, that brings him into the ship. And there's a girl that's playing like a, an electronic kazoo or something. I'm not sure what that was all about. That yeah. was weird. But uh, anyway, Kirk, so Kirk comes in, he inspects the ship, right? Because he's doing an inspection. He meets all the young cadets. And the one young cadet was the kid from Escape to Witch Mountain. And I don't oh, mean that. that where he was from? Yeah. I, I always sort of recognize him, yeah. but I'm like, I don't know where he's from. I don't mean the remake with The Rock, obviously, you know, but, yeah. the, you know, the, the original with Eddie Albert. And, and that's another thing, too, by the way. I just love the fact that the Gen X version of that movie has Eddie Albert and the millennial version has The Rock. I think it tells you everything you need to know about the two generations and movies, I think. But uh, anyway, so Kirk enters the bridge. The whole scene is just so nostalgic. 
And it made me think that it's almost as if Star Trek The Motion Picture never happened. Maybe that was the intent. And, yeah, and exactly. I, I wouldn't blame them, you know. It's just like that whole movie didn't happen. It just went from the TV series to the, the sequel here. Um, I also liked how nervous Kirk was when Kirstie Alley captained the ship as it takes off. Because Bones is like, do you need a tranquilizer? Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Uh, but uh, anyway, so Khan gets Chekhov. Uh, he gets him under the power of the, you know, the, the mind control little uh, scorpion thing. And yep. he gets him to tell Dr. Marcus that she's supposed to send Genesis to the Reliant. That's the Starfleet, or the Starfleet ship that Khan took over. Right. And I love the political angle that they take here. Because David says, scientists have always been pawns of the military. And I thought it was a great line. Because as you mentioned, Star Trek... It's, it's always been, it was very timely, the series. It was also a very political show. Yes. You know, it, it, I, I remember it was always about exploring human nature and how different life forms have human qualities. And one thing I'll never forget, I remember when I was an undergrad, I took an anthropology course and my prof referred to Star Trek as the ultimate anthropologists. And it always, yeah. it always stuck with me, that observation. Yeah. So Spock and Kirk... Uh, talk on the Enterprise, right? And, and Spock mentions how, I thought this was important, how he mentions taking a promotion was a big mistake for Kirk to do. And how he was meant to captain a ship, just like Bones had said earlier. And then they share the famous line, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And Spock mentions that, right? And yep. then, I, so uh, so Spock is in charge of the ship when it was sent out on like a training mission. And, but now that they have to go looking for the Reliant, it's like active duty. So the ranking officer, which was Kirk, should be in charge of the, of the ship. So, so Kirk is back at this point, which is really cool. And then Khan, of course, has the Reliant. And all he needs to do is just use it to go and just find a more inhabitable planet for him and his people. But no, what, what kind of movie would that be? You know, Khan wants revenge on Kirk, right? Of course he does. You know, and Khan's people don't agree with him. Or I should say his his one person doesn't agree. The one the actor... one person who's allowed to speak. The one actor who's not making scale disagrees with him. But Khan wants uh, revenge. And he's obviously filled with a lot of wrath, that Khan, I tell you. Yes. But uh, the other thing that was interesting is then Khan mentions an old Klingon proverb that he says, revenge is a dish best served cold. Not really sure if it's an old Klingon proverb. I'm pretty sure it was using the Godfather, actually, but not sure. But anyway, so I'm about halfway through the movie at this point, and I have a few observations. As I mentioned before, I get it. Compared to today's standards, this movie might be considered slow. You know, maybe even boring to some. And But I just I keep going back to this. You know, every episode we, we do this show. This is what I like about Gen X movies so much. It's not all nonstop action and just things flying at you a million miles a minute. There's actually time to reflect and think about what's going on. So halfway through this movie, I'm still really liking it. What about you? Absolutely. Yeah, this this as I mentioned earlier, I think the the structure of the movie is such that it really works well. They do a really good job in the in like sort of the first half or the first act or the the first quarter of the movie of really sort of setting up certain themes and setting up certain events 
that you can quickly start to see how the how the pieces are going to fit together, but you don't necessarily know the outcome. And with a lot of good storytelling, you have a lot of parallels, you have a lot of foreshadowing, uh, you have a lot of themes that are carried through. We've already talked about the idea of the life and death theme that's that's used constantly in this particular film. And uh, yeah, by like sort of the midpoint of it, um, it's it's firing on all cylinders it's it's paying off you're you're already starting to see the pieces fall into place one of the things i really liked and you mentioned this when they be, when they go into active duty and um kirk has to take command of the ship there's this scene where he goes to spock's quarters to sort of confront him about it or not confront that seems very uh hostile but to discuss it with him and you're reminded that spock is a vulcan without emotion um, and he says, like, you know, Jim, you, you, you act from a place of emotion. I don't have pride to be wounded. The logical choice is that the senior officer takes command. But it's interesting that this friendship between these two people is such that even though Kirk knows that he is a, 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 a quote, unfeeling Vulcan, he still does what any good leader would do in that you you have that con- that discussion with the with the person and not just walk in and say i'm taking command because i'm the senior officer so to me that sort of really just emphasized that it's 15 years after the original tv show but these two men are still very good friends and have a a very long history together and and that really continues to pay off through the course of the movie especially at the end yeah and and it's 15 years after the original series but all the old cliches are still here too because especially scotty you know he's like i'm hanging on as best as i can sir I can have auxiliary power back in a few minutes. The system's lit up like a Christmas tree. Just don't give me too many bumps. And I'm like, this is exactly like the old show, you know? And another cliche from the old show uh, is here too. And that's shatters over acting. (laughs) So the two things came to mind for me. The scene when they get the Reliance code so that they can override the computer system. I I love that scene so so much. It's so good. And and Khan wants the Genesis info, I think he wants. And, And Khan's, or sorry, Kirk's line is, here it comes now. And apparently he overacted that line so much. They had to get him to say it over and over and over again <laughs> until finally he just got tired and just said it more normally. <laughs> and that's the, the take that they used in the final edit. And then, of course, the other example of Shatner's overacting, which is one of the best lines of the whole movie, is when he yells, Con! It's just so funny, man. Oh, jeez. So a lot of the, the, the cliches and and a lot of the things that made the old show so popular were, were in here and in the movie. So uh, I thought of a couple other little nitpicks yes. about the movie itself that I want to read. Not really necessarily nitpicks, but observations, critical observations. So the first one is the scene you just talked about where they use the command code to – to lower the reliant to to lower, uh, command the reliant to lower the shields remotely. Right. It's like and he and, and he says to uh, Kirstie Alley's character, who's obviously new to the bridge, new to command, she's you know she is the representation of us as the audience. She, she's going to have to be told the things that we as the audience don't know either. And they say like this is how things work. Every ship has like a computer lock code so that people can't just hack it. And if you know the code though, you can hack it. The code's only five numbers. How hard is that to hack? <laughs> right. I guess in 1982, that seemed like a really a, a secure way to do it. But my wife, again, I'm watching with the wife. She turns to me. She goes, how many combinations is that? That's not very many. In a, in a time when they have supercomputers and they're doing you know, faster than light warp speed travel, you're telling me their computer can't 
figure out that many digits and just is the first time you come across every ship run all the combinations found it okay we're up yeah it's not so like that, it had to do a captcha or anything you yeah, know? yeah it wasn't even any on. letters it was just numbers <laughs> exactly. so i was like okay so that was one thing that again many after many viewings and and watching it in in a time 30 years later when technology real technology has advanced that seems a little bit archaic the other one that I was, uh, of course, it's it's totally eluding me now, but it'll come back to me. Nope, totally forgot it. Okay, we'll move on. When I remember it, we'll jump back in. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, so the kid from Witch Mountain dies, and then they go aboard Carol Marcus's ship. Uh, is it the regular regular one? Uh, the regular is the sh- is regular the starship. No, yeah. Reliant is the starship, and regular one is the yeah. base. Yeah, that's the, where, the space station where she's on. And there's those dead people that are hanging from the rafters. Khan obviously did that. That was one thing that I thought, oh, you know, a little little intense for the kids because I was watching yeah. them. And that, that was that, my only concern when you said we were yeah. going to watch. Yeah, because that scene was pretty, you know, pretty intense. And then I thought it was interesting because there's a rat running around the ship. There's a rat. Yeah. There's rats in space, apparently. Who knew? Uh, but Chekhov is there with Terrell. And then Terrell shoots one of the crew with his phaser and the guy just disappears. Yeah. And then he can't kill Kirk. So he just not. he can't do it. So he turns the phaser on himself and he just disappears, too. But then I thought it was interesting. Chekhov falls down and that thing comes out of his ear and Kirk shoots it with the phaser, but it doesn't just disappear, just catches on fire. So maybe another one of those inconsistencies. I don't know. Maybe we'll call that different settings on the phaser. Oh, I remember my other nitpick was. Oh, yeah. It's about those two guys. So they find the two Starfleet officers. And what's the first thing they do? Chekhov says it was Khan. He put these creatures in us to make us do things we didn't want to do. McCoy standing right there with a medical tricorder. You tell me the guy doesn't say like, why don't I give you a quick scan to make sure you're okay? Hey, it's still inside you. Maybe you're going to do something you don't want to do. But no, they're like, oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you were honest with us. Thanks. We'll totally accept you at face value now. You can't possibly do anything to betray us. Uh, Again, not something you pick up on necessarily the first time, but after a lot of viewings, it's just like, right. He told you straight up he had something in his – he was infected with a parasite. How does the doctor, the chief medical officer of the flagship of the Enterprise, not simply whip out the medical tricorder and go, let me give you a quick once-over and make sure you're okay? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they're they're stuck on this on this ship and then so uh, Terrell can't shoot Kirk like we said. So Khan decides just to leave Kirk in the middle of this barren planet just to get revenge, you know, like yes. Kirk did him. And that's where we get the great Khan. Um, so the kid from Square Pegs takes them out to show him the food supply and Kirk and Marcus get to talk. And that's when you find out for sure that Kirk and her were together in the past. I don't know if they were married or not. They didn't really didn't seem that way. No, it didn't seem like that. But you find out that David is Kirk's son, right? If you hadn't already guessed it by then. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I realized at this point too, was that Star Trek, the motion picture tried to be something that Star Trek never was. It, It tried to be this sort of big sprawling visual epic. And that's not what Star Trek is all about. Right. Star Trek's all about the characters. Exactly. And Wrath of Khan, it goes back to its roots, right? Because Star Trek is all about, you know, the the characters, as you mentioned, the the stories of life and human nature. And it doesn't have to be a big sprawling epic to explore those kind of themes. That's not what the show was. You know, the show was basically an an anthropology lesson, like my undergrad prof, you know, know, told me, right? But anyway, so they, they beam back to the Enterprise. And while they're getting beamed, I don't know if you noticed this. But Kirk and Kirstie Alley are having a conversation mid-beam. 
Yeah, I think that's a technical screw up. I think yeah, when kinda, they shot the cool. scene, I don't know. I, what I suspect again, I have no no corroboration on this, but what I suspect happened was when they shot the scene, they were the, the actors were standing on the transporter pad of the Enterprise, and the director said go, and they immediately started talking. When really what they should have done was stood there without speaking for two or three seconds to allow for the transporter special effect. Right. And by not doing that, they basically had to – they were like, OK, we got to put in the transporter effect. Well, it's going to be about three or four seconds. And they're like, oh, they're already going to be talking by then. So they just let it fly and you hear the voices get all wobbly and stuff. That Yeah, and that's like one of the only times in Star Trek that ever happens. I do not think it was intentional. I think it was a total screw up and they just did the best they could with what they had. Yeah. Um, so a couple things that I noticed. Khan uh, was wearing a necklace that had an Enterprise logo on it. Yeah. Not sure. Well, it, Starfleet. I, yeah, I Starfleet. Sorry, sorry, Starfleet. No, uh, I don't know if he got that from his wife's old Starfleet uniform or what it was. I'm not sure. And the other thing I noticed was even though it's the 23rd century, David is wearing a sweater tied around his neck like it's 1982. <laughs> which I thought was really funny when he walked into the scene. But uh, th- when they go into the, the was it the Mutara Nebula? Yeah. Uh, with the blue and the red clouds, and they go into it to lose Khan. Yep. And it was just like the old episodes where where, Con, or where Kirk would use these different tactics to get out of these situations. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time, I think, that the Enterprise ever moved vertically. Because yeah, it allows them to sneak up on Khan, right? Yeah. Uh, so the first two or three times I saw this movie, I was quite young. I didn't understand this part. When he talks about, it's like Spock straight up says his, his uh, pattern of attack would reveal two-dimensional thinking, which... Khan is not an experienced star starship uh, pilot, so it makes sense that that wouldn't occur to him to think in three dimensions. But he even says, he goes, well, you know, he is quite smart. He, they reference a few times how he's like genetically engineered to be superior intelligence. They t- tease him, right? Khan, the superior intellect, I'm laughing at you. But when they uh, when they say like to, to go up and down X number of kilometers uh, to gain that advantage, yeah, the first couple of times I saw this, I just I didn't understand it. It wasn't until a, f- a few viewings in and I got a little older that I'm like, oh, I totally get it. Uh, and it makes perfect sense. And it's it's one of those things in a lot of sci-fi that is never, in my mind, addressed correctly. Two spaceships coming from two different points that meet in outer space. What is the – what are the likelihood – what are the odds that the two ships would come with the same orientation? Right. Like – Almost none. One ship's going to be upside down compared to the other ship. Always. It's going to be off on some funny angle. And in outer space, there's no gravity. So sci-fi always says the ships have artificial gravity. So that's great. But it's still going to look upside down from one ship to the next. And that's just something that in these shows never happens. But uh, in any case. Um, So one thing I want to mention is my liking of Star Trek is limited to two things and two things only. This might be surprising. But they are the original series, as I mentioned, and the Wrath of Khan. I never really, I never saw the motion picture. I watched part of it and just hated it and just stopped watching it. And I've never seen any of the other Star Trek movies. I've never seen an episode of The Next Generation or Babylon 5 or Deep Space Nine or and whatever they're called. Any of those other incarnations of the show. It's the original series and Wrath of Khan. That's it for me. So Babylon 5 has nothing to do with Star Trek. Okay. Deep Space Nine was one of the spinoffs of okay. The Next Generation. Just, just got to point that out because it like... Burn my nerd brain for two seconds when you sort of lump them all into the same category. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, like I say, I've never watched any of that other stuff. It's just those two things. But anyway, back to the movie for a second. Uh, Khan's ship is like 
destroyed, right? Because, you know, Kirk gets him and shoots it. And he's all bloody. His crew's dead. And he knows he's done for. So he activates the Genesis. So it's going to destroy all the life in its path. And Khan delivers the line, from hell's heart, I stab at thee, which is from Moby, Moby Dick. And in the opening scene, I was taken back instantly to the opening scene when Chekhov and Terrell go into the Botany Bay and they see a, a stack of books on the shelf and Moby Dick is on top. Yeah. So obviously yeah. Khan's been reading those books and he quotes Melville here. But anyway, so the Enterprise has to get out. They can't get out. There's an engineering problem and there's radiation and, you know, no one can go in. So Spock goes in, he saves everybody and they get away. And then Kirk goes to see him and the best line of the movie, once again, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And Seinfeld, I remember on an episode, used that line. And I personally have used that line numerous times in my personal life. I say it all the time. It's good advice. It's true. You know, and I always say, I'll say that line and then I'll say, you know, that was Wrath of Khan, of course. Um, but I also like the exchange here that takes place between uh, Kirk and David because Kirk says they're just words. And David, I think showing that he's actually wiser than his dad, says they're good words. That's where ideas begin. And then he says, I'm proud to be your son. I think it's a good exchange. I like that scene. I thought it was really good. It could it could have come off as sappy and, and, and you know, and, and kind of smaltzy, but it doesn't. At least I didn't think it did. Um, and then Bones with another great quote when he says, he's not really dead if we remember him, which I thought yeah. was good. And then Nimoy's voice ends the film with the dialogue that used to open up every episode of the old series with Space the Final Frontier you know, bold to go where no man has gone before. Kirk always delivered that speech at the beginning of every show. But here Spock says it. I think it's a great way to end the film. Once again, yeah. it's like a throwback to the original series. Yeah. So. See, um, I want to just, uh, since we're getting to the end of it, I wanted <clears> to talk about the parallels. So we talked, uh, I mentioned earlier, like good storytelling will often have, uh, you know, parallels throughout and foreshadowing, that kind of thing. So at the beginning of the movie, Spock gives Kirk uh, a book for his birthday and through the course of the movie you see Kirk reading the book and at the end of the movie you see him finishing the book and then at the very end of the movie he actually quotes the book uh, so the book was A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens Dickens right, right? Tale yep. of Two Cities yep have you ever read Tale of Two Cities Are you of course familiar with the story yep. yep yeah so um, Paris and, and London the thing, pardon me it's Paris and London the two yeah two, yep and then um, at the uh, it's been a long time since I've read the book but I believe that at the end of the book you have uh, two characters, a character who is uh, uh, supposed to be hanged or executed switches places with somebody else uh, or, or somebody chooses to switch place with the person who's sentenced to death because it's the right thing to do. It's this whole idea of the needs of the one and the needs of the few and all that jazz. And it parallels very nicely with the story that we're seeing with Kirk and Spock. And then Kirk even has the line, you know, it is a far better thing, rah, rah, rah. The, and that's the final line of the book. That's the, the thing, you know, do you have any final words before he execute you? That's what the guy says in the book. And um, so I just found it uh, again. It's it's one of those things that a lot of the audience is probably not going to get, especially if you've never read the book, uh, the, the Tale of Two Cities, that is. Um, but if you have, it's it's just another layer of that life and death theme, the sacrifice, the needs of the many, the needs of the few. It's it's really woven into the story in a very creative and clever way that totally works. And, uh, and again, it's just it's just one of those reasons that this is such a great movie is it's not just a sci-fi shoot 'em up 
aliens show up and we blast them with our phasers and we go flying at light speed. It's it's a really nuanced story. It's about these characters. It's about their development. In this case, it's about the death of one of your favorite characters and how the how his friend handles the death. And like every time I watch this, the funeral scene where where Kirk's giving the eulogy. Uh, you know, you just sort of, you know, I'm not crying. You're crying. I got something in my eye. Right. It's like it's it's touching because you you know these characters and you know that these two guys were best friends and, and each would have sacrificed the other uh, to save, the, you know, the ship. And and that's a recurring theme in a lot of the newer Star Treks is, you know, your first priority needs to be to the ship and the crew above all else. And uh, and they just do such a good job in this movie of really. Uh, hitting that home. And it's just one more reason why it's such a great, great movie and a great, great sequel. I agree. Okay, so one thing I wanted to mention was when this movie came out in 1982, it, it wasn't this huge box office hit. It was it, it cracked the top 10 in domestic box office, but it, was, it only finished number eight. Just taking a look here at some of the movies that were in there. Officer to Gentleman, Porky's, Arthur, we're all ahead of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. 1982 was a really good year for movies. Holy mackerel. There were some good ones. Uh, we'll have to, like I say, maybe take a look at uh, centering out some years at some point and looking at those. But anyway, like back to this movie, like a lot of movies that I get to go back and watch for this show. I, I hadn't seen this movie in like 20, 30 years, as I mentioned. And I thought it held up really well. You know, as far as comparing to today's movies, I think it's better than a lot of the science fiction films I, you know, that I've seen that have come out over the last decade or so. I thought the movie held up. I didn't think it felt overly dated. Like I mentioned, it's a little slower paced than a lot of today's movies like Guardians of the Galaxy that you had me watch recently. But overall, I think it's a really, really good movie. Uh, there's a lot to like in, in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan as far as I'm concerned. It stays close to its roots in the original series, I was really happy to go back and watch it. It took me on a nostalgic time trip. And, and I'm also glad that my kids liked it as well. So, like I say, I've said before, I'm a lucky guy that I get to do this show every week. So, I enjoyed it. You yeah, obviously no, I really too. liked it yeah. too. It's it's definitely it was good. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, I don't know if it would make my all-time top 10. Probably I'll make my all-time top 20 though. I think that's probably fair. Yeah, I think we did we did an episode on sequels a while back, and it was one of the the best sequels that I've ever seen. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely, uh, for sure. It will, when we're talking sequels and only sequels, this definitely is in the top five, probably in the top three. Uh, and you could certainly argue it for for number one best sequel of all time. Although I think Empire Strikes Back probably takes Empire Strikes one. Back is the greatest sequel yeah, ever. Yeah, but but this, but I, this, this one this one is partially right up there. yeah this one's partially on its own merits and partially on the fact that the the original film was just so crappy, you know? So, you know, it's kind of both those things together. But no, I thought it was really good. But uh, do you want to give it a rating out of 10? Probably a eight and a half or a nine. Oh, I would give it an eight and a half as well. So yeah. I think we both agree on that one. So no, it was really great to go back and, and watch Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Really enjoyed myself. Anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. <laughs> All right, my friend, it is over to you. I get to relax for a little bit. You are going to take things away since I nominated the film. So uh, don't relax, man. You got some trivia questions coming your way. Oh, no, let's have some fun. You got to bring your A game tonight. Uh, What are we doing? All right. So before we get into the trivia trivia, I have like a pre-trivia question to set up the trivia. Okay. So I want you to give me the full names of the four main Star Trek bridge crew characters. 
the bridge crew characters. So there was yeah. uh, there was Command. the four the four male leads on Star Trek. What uh, are their characters' full names? Uh, well, there's Captain James T. Kirk. Yep. There's Spock. I guess McCoy. What's McCoy's first name? It was Bones. That's not his Christian name. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't remember what it was. It. Leonard. Leonard McCoy. Leonard McCoy. Oh my god. And then I have Sulu. Uh, let's go with Mr. Scott is the name I'm looking well, for. Well, he wasn't on the bridge. He was down in the engineering no. room, right? Fair enough. Uh, but do you know Mr. Scott's first name? Uh, his first name, I will say it was Scott. No. <laughs> I just know by char- Scotty. That was yeah. it. So uh, his his character's name was Montgomery Scott. Oh, wow. So uh, the game we're going to play tonight okay. is called James, Kirk, Leonard, McCoy, Montgomery, Scott. All of the answers will include the names James, Kirk, Leonard, McCoy, Montgomery, or Scott. So it's the, I'm going to ask you to name a famous actor, actress, or some some Hollywood personality. Okay. And the answer will have the first or last name of James Kirk, Leonard McCoy, or Montgomery Scott. Okay. Okay? So if you're not sure, you can always just pull from that list. Uh, I was going to throw Spock in there, but I couldn't find any actors who had a first or last name of Spock. So. Yeah, yeah. Other yeah, than so Dr. Benjamin that. Spock, I guess. And he's yeah. Not an actor, well, so. Okay. Yeah, no. All right. Sense. So uh, I think you'll find a lot of these are pretty straightforward, especially once you get the hang of it. And uh, I tried to pull a few uh, that I thought were a little more in your wheelhouse. There's, there might be a couple of newer ones you may have a, few, a little trouble with, but I think for the most part, you should do pretty well on this one. All okay. right. So you ready? All right. Go ahead. All right. She played the title character Samantha Stephen in Bewitched. Oh my God! What was her name? It was um, Elizabeth Montgomery. Yes. Yes. Here we go. All right. This famous director has been nominated for four Best Directing Oscars, including one for the Best Picture winner, Gladiator. I will say Ridley Scott. Right. All right. He was Spartacus. Oh, was um, uh, Kirk Douglas. Correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his role of Motel in Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, my goodness. I was going to say Topol, but I don't think that's right. It wasn't any of those names. Uh, George C. Scott? No, it was Leonard Frey. Oh, Leonard Frey. Okay, who knew? All right. Uh he became a star playing Mike Seaver, but reached a whole new audience with his Christian-themed post-rapture film series, Left Behind. Oh, God. Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron, you Jeez. got it. Oh, man. All right. He first worked alongside Seth Rogen in Freaks and Geeks and has now starred with him in 10 films since then. Oh, James Franco. Franco, you got it. Yes. All right. Uh, next one. He rose to stardom in the 80s when he played a rich, arrogant playboy in Pretty in Pink. Now he plays one of FBI's most wanted fugitives on The Blacklist. Oh, uh, James Spader. Spader, you got yes. it. All right. He's best remembered for playing Stifler in the American Pie franchise. Oh, what was that guy? That's way after my time, but it was, um, uh, wasn't it like... Sh- he had like three names. I don't know. Sean William Scott. Ah, okay. Jeez. It was the Scott that made him qualify for this ah, one. Right. All right. Uh, I don't remember the category. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this one uh, may be a little trickier. 
She played Sonny Crockett's ex-wife on Miami Vice and was the mom on Doogie Howser, M.D. Oh, cheapers! Uh, I have no idea. Belinda Montgomery. Oh, go figure. Right. She was nominated for Best Actress for her role in The English Patient. I don't know. Kirsten, St- Kirsten Scott Thomas. Oh, geez. All right. This one might be a little tougher for you. It's a little newer. Uh, she played FBI agent Samantha Spade on Without a Trace and Carrie Wells, the police detective with perfect recall in Unforgettable. I know her. It's Poppy Montgomery. Yes. yes. There you go. You get the Montgomery out of that yeah. one. All right. Here's a, here's a nice slow one right over the plate for you. Before he was in charge of the Powell household, he played Fonzie's cousin on Happy Days. Oh, Scott Baio. There you go, Scott Baio. <laughs> yes, Charles in charge. If you had got that wrong, I would have never let you forget it. <laughs> you would have been mad at me for sure. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, this Scott is best known for playing the young Professor X in the X-Men movie franchise. Oh, God, I, I haven't seen any of those movies so um i no idea james mcavoy no oh, jeez this scott because he's scottish oh scottish i gotcha oh, well, well. uh all right he played dr wilson on the long-running tv series house md i don't know robert sean leonard no oh, that was that was the, the guy that played house no, that's not no that was Dr. Wilson. He was the oh, friend. Okay. He's also in Dead Poets Society. Hmm. No. All right. Uh, a couple easier ones coming into the end here. Uh, he played time traveler Dr. Sam Beckett in Quantum Leap. Oh, was this Scott Bakula? Yes. Was Scott Bakula. Yes. There you go. I had to think for a minute. I got to re- always remember the, the, the category here. I got to remember yes. all these names. Yeah. James Kirk, Leonard McCoy, McEnry Scott. McEnry, one of those names Scott, will be in every answer. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, just a couple to go. Okay. This one is, is really digging in there. Okay. He played Old Yeller's owner, Travis Coates, in the classic film. Oh, that was uh, Tommy Kirk. Tommy Kirk, you yes. got it. Yes. All right. Uh, he was nominated for a Best Actor Emmy six years in a row for playing Tony Soprano, and he won three out of six of them. Uh, James Gandolfini. James Gandolfini, yes. you got it. Had to think right. about it for a second, yep. All right. Last last question. I need two names to get this one correct. Okay. The two actors from the original Star Trek bridge crew who fit into this category. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, Leonard Nimoy. Yes. And is it James Doohan? Yes! Yes! Hey, there you go. Good job. Nice. Ooh, had to think there for a second. That, that was a great category. My okay, goodness. Really made me think. And I kept forgetting what the, the, there was all these names I got to refer to. So so you got good uh, job. 12 out of 18. So you went, uh, you bad. know, 66%. That's pretty good. That's a pass. That's well above mm-hmm. a pass. There was a few in there I wasn't sure because they were really old or really new. But uh, you right. did very well. You got a lot of the ones I wasn't sure of. But uh yeah, no, that's... Uh, no, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that 66%. Yep. I'll take the pass to the bank. It's all good. Yep. Sure, for sure. Anytime. That was a tough one, so I think I came away relatively unscathed. Uh, so it's over to you to, to nominate a film for next week. What movie do you want me to watch and come back? Uh, what millennial film should I watch and come back and and uh, review with you? 
Well, I wanted to – so a lot of the movies I've given you lately have been like from the 90s or like 2000, like right on the cusp. So I wanted to dig for something a little newer, okay. which I know you'll hate, but too bad. You're going to watch it anyway. It's all good. Uh, you've been giving me a lot of comedies lately. I've been giving you a lot of dramas lately. So I think I'm going to switch it up a little bit. Since okay. you went with the sci-fi, which is sort of in my wheelhouse, I'm going to go with comedy, which is a little in your wheelhouse. Oh, nice. And I want you to watch the 2010 comedy – Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> I've heard of that movie. I've never seen it. Um, it I, I, the only thing I know about it is it's kind of a throwback to like the 70s and 80s comedies or something. It's supposed to be, isn't it? They, they, well, Other than yeah, the fact that it's a time machine. Too much but. of it for you. The characters use the hot tub to travel in time and they go back to the 80s. And it's got John Cusack and Chevy Chase and a bunch of other people you're going to recognize. I, I thought it was great. It's one of those guilty pleasure kind of movies that – you don't really have to feel too guilty for liking because it's actually got a lot of good parts. It is a very hard R. Definitely do not let your children watch okay. this movie. Good. And uh, you may uh, find that this is another one of those things where your wife's going to turn to you and go, I don't know what that means. What's that? And she's going to be looking up things on <laughs> yep. her phone. So make Happens sure it's not a work time. device. Yep. But uh, yeah, watch Hot Tub Time Machine. Uh, we'll talk about the movie. I'll tell you a little bit of uh, why I like the movie, why I'm nominating it next week. But uh I think uh, there's an outside chance you might actually like this. Yeah, who knows? And, yeah. Uh, if nothing else, it gives me an excuse to watch it again this week, and we'll come back next week and review How Tub Time Machine from 2010. And it gives me the opportunity to watch a movie, a newer movie that I've never seen. So this is another reason why I love to do in the show. Uh, if you want to re reach out to us on Twitter, you're going to find uh, Derek at Amaron underscore DM, and you'll find me at C. McBrien. And PopGoesYourWorld.com is, of course, our website with all of our contact information. Uh, until next week, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at PopGoesYourWorld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 